a lot of these fields are just getting off the ground now, so we're just scratching the surface right now, and the technology is moving so fast that we're able to look at all these questions that people won't even think we could have looked at 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Hi everybody, my name is Doug Barr and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the St. Helena Forum for Innovation and Creativity. Today at the Forum we're going to be talking about the relatively new scientific field of epigenetics. What the heck is epigenetics, you ask? Well, to answer that question, let me quote from the Center for Disease Control. They say that your genes play an important role in your health, but so do your behaviors and environments, such as what you eat and how physically active you are. Epigenetics is the study of how your behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. Unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes are reversible and don't change your DNA sequence, but they can change how your body reads a DNA sequence. Gene expression refers to how often or when proteins are created from the instructions within your genes. While genetic changes can alter which protein is made, epigenetic changes affect gene expression to turn genes on and off. You got that? I'm guessing right now half of you are nodding and saying, oh, yeah, that's very cool. And the rest of us are saying, huh? So we've invited a renowned expert to help us all understand this cutting-edge research. Dr. Carissa Sanbanmotsu is a structural biologist at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, where she works on the mechanisms of non-coding RNA complexes. Sanbanmatsu was born in Rochester, New York. Her parents are both professors of speech communications at the State University of New York. She won the Pembroke College Stokes Society Scientific Lecture Competition at the University of Cambridge, and then went on to study physics at Columbia University, where she used their, and this is the name of it, Very Large Array Radio Telescope to estimate the distance to a supernova remnant and its central X-ray source. After earning her PhD in astrophysical sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder, Dr. Sanban Matsu joined the Los Alamos National Laboratory where she became interested in something completely different. What distinguishes life from matter? The Sanban Matsu Laboratory at Los Alamos was established in 2001. In 2005, Carissa won the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. At the time, epigenetics was beginning to develop, and Sanban Matsu realized that RNA could be involved in how genes are turned on and off, as we were saying. Dr. Sanban Matsu has been a leading figure in structural studies of long non-coding RNAs and epigenetics. Carissa has also written about gynandromorphism and how DNA influences hormones, but also how hormones can reprogram DNA. Dr. Sanban Matsu was elected as a fellow of the American Physical Society in 2012. Most recently, Carissa's lab set the record for the world's largest published biomolecular simulation at one billion atoms, the first simulation of an entire gene. We have asked our friend Dr. Elizabeth Bates-Fried to join Dr. Sanban Matsu for a conversation. Betsy Bates-Fried, as many of you already know, is a clinical psychologist and medical journalist with a special interest in the intersection between physical illness and emotional well-being. Born and raised in Colorado, Betsy graduated from Denison University with a degree in writing and then worked for more than 25 years as a daily newspaper reporter and editor. 
He was also a medical correspondent and bureau chief for the International Medical News Group and has also written for independent publications for physicians, including clinical psychiatry news, pediatric news, and internal medical news. In a midlife career shift, Betsy earned her master's and doctorate degrees in clinical psychology from Antioch University. Her clinical practice focuses on patients and families as they manage illnesses such as cancer, neuromuscular diseases, and dementia. And in addition, Betsy teaches psychology at the graduate level and is currently writing a book for therapists about working with families of dementia patients. And now, if everybody's ready, let's listen in on a conversation between Dr. Carissa Sanban-Matsu and Dr. Betsy Bates-Fried. Well, hello. It's so nice to see you this afternoon, Dr. Sambanatsu. Um, and we're, I think we're excited to have you on the St. Helena Forum because you're going to be sort of explaining worlds to us within cells and DNA that um, people know a little bit about from their science backgrounds or, you know, classes they've taken. But it just sounds like there's been a real revolution of knowledge in this area. And so I'm very excited to talk to you about what it is you've been looking at and um, where you're going from here. So um, to start out, I thought that it would be interesting to sort of give us a little bit of an overview of where, how science came into your life. Like, you know, the first awareness that you had as a child that this was something that drew you. And I, I know from your background that you were raised in a humanities family. So it wasn't like you had science talk around you all the time at the dinner table. Um, so where did it come from, this love of science? Well, that's a fantastic question. Um, I uh, got really excited about the NASA um, space program when I was really little, maybe four or five or six years old. And um, my parents took me to a uh, space shuttle launch in Florida, and we got to go to the um, space museum and everything. And I got really uh, bonk going bonkers about astronauts in space uh, back then. And then um, Star Wars c came out, and I got uh, really excited about Star Wars that summer. My family was moving and me and my friends, they would drop us off at the theater once a week and we'd watch Star Wars every week uh, for the whole summer. <laughs> um, and so I got really in indoctrinated into the Star Wars universe. And uh, and th then I was really, I think, really go going in the science direction from, from then on. And, and then in sort of, I think after fourth grade, my mom enrolled me in a, um, uh, a program for gifted kids um, to learn about uh, computers and computer programming. And this is when personal computers had just been invented. Um, so we were on the TRS-80 uh, computer and I got really excited about writing code. And I, um, I begged my parents uh, every week um, until Christmas for our own um, computer. We got a TRS-80 color computer and then I would just write code all, as much as I could. Uh, I remember one time I had written thousands of lines of code for a game and um, someone was vacuuming and they unplugged the computer to plug in the vacuum cleaner. And um, I, and back then you couldn't save any, there was nothing to save on, you know, so it was all erased and had, but in those days we wrote it down in pencil. So I uh, wrote it all back, but uh, oh, yeah, but so that, that's how I kind of got interested in the beginning. 
Oh my gosh, that's just that. I'm sure that's a memory that never leaves you. Yeah, um, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then, so did you? Did, was your interest in science sustained through, say, junior high, high school, um, until you got to college? Uh, yeah, I think um, I, I was writing a lot of code, like in say fifth, sixth, seventh grade, and then. Um, I got to a point where my games were going too slow and uh, to make them go faster, you really needed to know assembly language and machine code. And that was just beyond what I could do at sort of seventh grade level. And I, I didn't really have a mentor um, to guide me forward on that. So I kind of dropped out of the coding scene for, for a while until um, really until I, you know, I, I still had my interest in space. Um, so I enrolled at Columbia University for college as uh, in astrophysics, and I had a job uh, looking at radio astronomy data with um, David Helfand. And um, uh, but for my junior year, I studied abroad at Cambridge University, and there I had a short course on scientific programming with Fortran. Uh, so then I got back into coding back then, and then um, I I. Uh, uh, I, one of my friends in Cambridge was really interested in um, biology and sort of, um, he, he was kind of a rebel in physics. Um, so I also kind of became a little bit rebellious. My parents were kind of rebels also in the humanities. Um, so when I got back to Columbia, my senior year, one of my um, sweet mates was reading the book Chaos uh, by James Gleek about um, nonlinear physics and um, chaos and how how Newton's uh, kind of the Newtonian way of looking at things has a lot of limits to it. And um, so I got really excited about chaos. And then I went to grad school in Boulder in astrophysics, but I was really more interested in chaos and nonlinear uh, physics. So instead of going into astrophysics, I went into uh, plasma physics as applied to um, space physics. Uh, so specifically my PhD was about the auroral, the cause of the auroral uh, Aurora Borealis and the Northern Lights, um, and there's a lot of plasma physics that happen uh, there. And so that in in uh, grad school, I started. I was de deriving mostly equations, but uh, and nonlinear differential equations. But toward the end of my PhD, I started doing a lot of programming on the supercomputers in Boulder at uh, the the NCAR National Center for Atmospheric Research um, Compute Center. Um, so then I I picked up computing back during my PhD a lot. Wow. And what took you, I find it really fascinating that you went from looking at the vastest things, you know, space, to looking at the, the smallest things, you know, um, you know, DNA and RNA and ribosomes. Where did that shift come from matter into life and life science? Yeah, um, so it was a big transformation. And so um, back in Cambridge, and when I was an undergrad, you know, one of my friends was getting into life sciences, but I, I, I really didn't get it back then. Um, but in Boulder, during my PhD, um, I was very excited about chaos. And, um, and after chaos came a, a kind of field called complexity theory. And there was a lot of biophysics in that field in terms of self-organization, um, the formation of patterns and structure and biological systems, like in embryo development, for example. And I uh, begged my PhD advisor to go to a summer school in Santa Fe Institute 
And he said, well, you can go, but I'm not paying you. Uh, so I had to um, get by uh, uh, on a tight, tight budget as a student without a salary for that summer. And um, But um, we had some fantastic classes on complexity and, and uh, in biological sciences. And so I still was in plasma physics for my PhD and postdoctoral fellowship at Los Alamos. Um, and the, in Los Alamos, I was in laser fusion, still in plasma physics, uh, but I really had a yearning to get to kind of move move on from plasma physics and move more into biology. And I was getting very excited about origin of life. I would spend all my weekends reading about origin of life and biochemistry. And then, um, and then I begged my a department chair to go to a biology conference. Um, my first one, it was uh, the, um, uh, I think international ISMB. Uh, it is like one of the first uh, bioinformatics conferences in San Diego. And I um, was very excited about ribosomes because in the origin of life, if you read these pop science books, when they uh, try to describe how the ribosome came into existence, uh, most of the books say that either God created the ribosome or uh, the aliens brought the ribosome down from from somewhere else, you know, but no one had a good uh, physics-based explanation of the ribosome. Um, so I thought that would be a good place to look. And then when I got to that conference in San Diego, I Googled uh, ribosome uh, and UC San Diego and one name popped up, um, Simpson Joseph. So I knocked on his door and... Um, and right then was a key point in the ribosome field because the higher, the first ever high resolution structures of the ribosome came out. And uh, so it was an exciting time. And he was looking for someone who kind of knew how to use supercomputers and could do modeling. Um, so we started maybe a 10 year collaboration that, that weekend and, and uh, really got a lot of nice papers out of that. Oh, wow. So, you and I talked a little bit in, in, when we were getting to know each other about ribosomes and how to describe what these are to, to you know, that trying to find analogies. You and I went back and forth of like, and so if you can just share with us, you know, what's an easy way to understand a complex thing like a ribosome? What is it? Uh, yeah, so... Um, in, in biological systems in general, uh, there's something called the central dogma of molecular biology, which was uh, put forth in large part by Watson and Crick. Uh, and that is that the information for any living thing, a human, a bacteria, a plant, it starts in the DNA molecules. And then uh, what happens is that in your cells, uh, not only are there DNA, but there are all kinds of little uh sort of nanoscale uh, molecular machines. These are naturally occurring in your body, but they act like little tiny machines and they look like little tiny machines. And so one of these machines uh, called the RNA polymerase, it gloms onto the DNA and it starts reading the information on the DNA. So DNA is a long uh, string-like molecule uh, and it has building blocks. So you could think of it almost like uh, Christmas ornaments or beads on a string, uh, but it's a long string with with lots of little building blocks called side chains. And those side chains can either be a, an adenine, a guanine, a thymine, or a cytosine. This, these are the four letters that make up the genetic uh, information. 
and you have you know billions of the of these uh, letters in sequence uh, in that molecule. And so the RNA polymerase gloms onto the DNA and it reads that sequence, but not the entire genome, just one gene. And based on that gene it reads, it will create uh, an RNA uh, strand. So it will create an RNA molecule from the DNA. And this is called the messenger RNA. You may have heard about messenger RNA in terms of uh, COVID vaccines. Uh, right. So the Moderna and Pfizer companies. Yeah, that's right. So the messenger RNAs, mRNA stands for messenger ribonucleic acid or mRNA, and the vaccines are, are made out of mRNA for COVID. And so uh, once that mRNA is made, then another little machine gloms onto the mRNA called the ribosome. And the ribosome uh, sort of uh, rides that mRNA and it reads it like a kind of a ticker tape or a cassette tape. And uh, the mRNA itself has uh, a sequence, just like the DNA. Uh, so it can have four letters, an adenine, a guanine, a cytosine, or a uracil. A, uh, and so there's a sequence of those letters corresponding to the gene on the DNA. And so the ribosome starts reading the messenger RNA and then making proteins. So it synthesizes a protein based on the mRNA. And the proteins are really what do the work in the cell. They may uh, perform chemical reactions. They may make up the structure of the cell. They may um, increase other gene expression. They may help replicate the DNA or the RNA and do all kinds of things. Uh, but the, the ribosome is sort of this, almost like the CPU or the, the compute part of the cell uh, because it does the information processing. Uh, so, so it's basically uh, so, like a, yeah. little, a little protein factory that's getting yeah, its exactly. information the from RNA. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, so you could think of the ribosome as like a mobile uh, factory that rides along the messenger RNA, and um, and then it's trying to piece together uh, the the proteins from what it reads on on the messenger RNA. So that I think that's really I think you've built a really clear picture there. And so, people tend to think of our DNA, you know, the long winding molecule that we all envision as being fixed. Is that true? Uh, well, that's a great question. Um, so uh, it's true in some senses, but not in other senses. Um, so uh, the DNA in our, in our cells, uh, the, the DNA sequence is relatively fixed, the A, G, Cs, and Ts. Uh, for the most part, remain in the same order. But there are instances where they can uh, change. Um, for example, if a cosmic ray from outer space, space hits you, uh, it may cause a single point mutation. Um, when DNA is replicated, you know, for uh, cells to divide, you have in, in, when you have one cell that divides into two cells, you also have to copy all the DNA in that one cell into two copies for it to go into the two daughter cells. And during that replication process, errors can, can come in, mistakes in, in the copying. Um, in addition, uh, during um, when in the process of, uh, you know, making babies uh, fertiliz in fertilization, uh, the uh, big chunks of the DNA can be transferred between chromosomes and so forth. And that can cause the DNA to change. Um, so these are all uh, mutations of DNA that are very fairly rare, but happen 
Now, in addition, uh, there's a whole other level of change of DNA uh, that's much more widespread and not rare, but a lot more commonplace. And this is called epigenetics. And so in epigenetics, um, what happens is that the sequence of the DNA does not change. So the A's, the G's, the C's, and the T's, that sequ those don't change, but you can kind of modulate what an A actually is. So, uh, you know, an A, an, an adenine uh, has a number of atoms in it uh, that looks like uh, a hexagon connected to a pentagon uh, with a few uh, sticks sticking out of it. And um, if you just change one of those atoms, it can change the chemical properties of that uh, A, and then it would be what we call modified A. So it, you may uh, change, uh, for example, you, you may have uh, a, a carbon um, sticking out and it may get uh, modified. So you can change the methylation status of that adenine and this can have um, dramatic effects on the gene expression, it turns out, if it's done at the right time and in the right place. And so these different, uh, we call them marks or epigenetic marks or epigenetic modifications, they can really alter uh, a, a tremendous amount of gene expression in the cell. And so in that sense, um, the, the, gene, the genome is not really fixed in, in the sense that the genes are turned on and off uh, differently depending on these marks. And the marks are often uh, induced by environmental effects. So it may be uh, carcinogens or nicotine from cigarettes or um, uh, all kinds of things can cause these modifications. Right. And so is it is it too simplistic to sort of consider epigenetics the to have the analogy that the DNA might be a musical score, a song that someone's written, and that whoever's playing it, whether it's a classical musician or a jazz musician, might see those very same notes, but maybe the conductor wants it louder or softer or a different rhythm, or so that epigenetics alters that original score to be different. Uh, right. Um, so... I think it depends on the, the situation. And in some cases, the um, epigenetic changes can really be quite quite dramatic. So, uh, so for example, when, um, for, you know, when a pregnancy occurs and uh, the egg is fertilized, uh, you have one um, fertilized egg cell and that will grow and divide into two cells and those into four and those into eight. Uh, that's maybe, I think, about three days after the fertilization occurs. Um, and those eight cells have essentially, are, are essentially identical. But when you go past that, um, the, the ball of cells starts getting a lot more complicated. And these cells differentiate into different kinds of cells. So then one of the next stages is called blastocyst which has um, different layers uh, and different cell types in the, the blastocysts uh, you have this kind of outer shell. And then you have um, at one side, you have um, a different kind of uh, cell type. Uh, and then when the development happens further, you get a lot of more of different kinds of cells. And eventually some of these cells will turn into a brain cell or a heart cell or a lung cell or a blood cell, but they all have the same DNA code. Even though it's a brain cell, 
uh, it will have identical DNA to a blood cell, but how is that possible? It, we, I thought that, you know, all the instructions are in the DNA. How could one turn out to be a blood cell and one turn out to be a brain cell? Well, the, the research is really pointing toward epigenetics. So at early stages uh, in, uh, in development, uh, the cells differentiate and those differentiation events uh, are caused in a large part by epigenetics where uh, different epigenetic switches will turn on one gene but turn off another at just at the perfect time to cause the cell to, to change into a brain cell or a blood cell. Um, so you can have um, a, a lot of dramatic effects. So um, in terms of the analogy to music, um, I'm not sure I would say that it's like um, uh, a classical, uh, like, like the score, having um, a sequence of notes and having different uh, ways to play that sequence, but it, it, but maybe more like jazz, where in jazz you don't have a sequence of notes at all. You just have overall chord changes. Uh, but the musician chooses the, the note, whoever the musician is, they choose the notes themselves. Uh, and so, but the overall direction is the same. Um, so um, so you, you might make an analogy like that, but the, the point is though that um, the, the DNA sequence is kind of, um, you know, the, the kind of gives the overall structure, but then epigenetics chooses um, which of those genes to use and which not to use for, for which cells and so forth. Okay, wonderful. That's so interesting. And I do want to talk a little bit about how these, how the discoveries are being made of what of what's happening and how you're using supercomputers uh, at Los Alamos to uh, kind of figure out how this might happen for this change or that change. Um, and also just to talk a little bit about Los Alamos, you've spent your career there. And I think it would be surprising to some people that you're doing research that seems so far apart from nuclear research or weapons research. So I'd love to know a little bit about the place you're doing this work and and the how you're doing this work. Uh, absolutely. So. Um with the Oppenheimer movie that just came out, um, uh, it, it gave a picture of Los Alamos in the 1940s, but we've continued on to today and we still have a bright future going forward. And I think one of the things that um, has has allowed Los Alamos to be maintain its strength and be a quite vital, vibrant place of science is um, I think the tenor that Oppenheimer set in the beginning about basic science is so important. Like not only in the movie, but in all the books about the Manhattan Project, there's always this classic tension between General Grove, the military guy, and Robert Oppenheimer, the scientist. And Oppenheimer is continually pushing uh, uh, the boundaries of um, the, the rigid requirements of, of secrecy, basically, you know, and um, um, so like a big example is he wanted all the scientists to talk to each other and General Groves didn't want anyone to talk to each other, you know, but Oppenheimer knew that this is, uh, we're not just what we do here. We're not just following instructions to build like a model airplane that's already been designed. You know, we're trying to break ground to stuff that's never been done before by anyone. And, and one of the reasons it's never been done is these are very hard problems that have stumped the brightest minds for 50 or hundred years, you know, so and it's, you can't do that in isolation. You know, if the reason Oppenheimer brought everyone here 
the greatest minds of the day was so they can talk to each other and to get the synergy going and everything. And, um, and there was a lot of basic physics that went on in, in the Manhattan Project, and it really um, continued. And one of the programs we have here at Los Alamos is called um, Laboratory Directed Research and Development, or LDRD. And this um, takes about 5% of the annual budget of Los Alamos, which is in the billions, um, to devote to basic research. Um, and it's peer-reviewed. We have um, internal community committees, and it's very tough to get these internal grants, about 5% get funded. Um, uh, but if you write a good enough grant and have your preliminary data, you can kind of do almost anything you want, you know. Um, so it really um, fosters basic research here. And that allowed me, a plasma physicist, to move into biophysics, then to start a wet lab and now do cryogenic electron microscopy. So I could really follow my heart and my scientific journey where my curiosity led me. Um, and that's one thing that you don't always see at some of the other um, scientific venues, um, because here there's really a high, uh, there's a high priority for creativity, I think here, and, and it's um, people protect, protect that. Um, and then in, in terms of supercomputers, uh, so one of the first supercomputers was built here during the Manhattan Project. And shortly after, um, Nicholas Metropolis, who invented the Monte Carlo algorithm, he was a key player in designing the first supercomputer with von Neumann, or one of the first, uh, the um, uh, Maniac, I believe it's called. And uh, and then since, um, then came the Cray computers. Uh, and then when I got here, it was um, ASCII Blue Mountain. And then we had the Q machine with uh, HP. And then we had Roadrunner, which had the PlayStation chips. And then we had uh, Trinity, another large uh, compute platform uh, with uh, from Cray again. Um, so Los Alamos has a history of supercomputing from the very beginning of, of the field. And then, and then, and I've been using it in biophysics. Um, so I was doing supercomputing uh, for laser fusion and plasma. And that's, that enabled me to move into biophysics actually, because um, in biophysics back then, they didn't really have too many people applying supercomputers to, to biology problems. Um, so I had a marketable skill and I could, uh, uh, they needed someone like me to go in and uh, apply the, these computers to their problems. Um, and then, so how I'm using it right now is, um, and in general in biology, uh, so when you think of a biological system like, uh, like a cell or a ribosome, you know, your cells are made of atoms. You know, they're not just these squishy things that they actually are made of atoms. And if you took a microscope and you zoomed into one cell, you know, you would see that the cell is made up of a lot of uh, proteins and lipids, and those are made of atoms. And they're immersed in water, mo mostly water. But if you zoom in, you know, water has one oxygen and two hydrogens, and it looks like a little triangle. And it's kind of like the DNA and everything is packed into packing peanuts. Uh, or maybe one of these um, at the kids uh, kids amusement park where they're in those plastic ball uh, seas, yeah. like yeah, they have a, a pool yeah. of like a hundred or a thousand balls, and the kids are swimming around in there. Um, so you can think of like your ribosome or your DNA is you know in that um, sea of plastic balls, and the balls are the waters, water molecules, and they're constantly bombarding the the ribosome or the DNA and so forth. Uh, and then 
the way these little machines work is that they're kind of dancing around just randomly like the ribosome. Uh, but once in a while, it it may hit a funny angle where it allows it to move to move around. Um, so so another example that might be easier to explain. Well, why don't I stick to the ribosome? Um, so so you have your ribosome, and maybe I could demonstrate with a little cable. Excellent. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, cable here. Um, so. Okay. Uh, so you have your ribosome, say, as my hand, and the rib and the cable is the messenger RNA. So the ribosome is gripping onto the messenger RNA, and it needs to move along the messenger RNA only in one direction, and by exactly uh, three uh, side chain bases at a time. Those bases, like A, G, C, or U, um, it moves three at a time. So it's very precise in one direction. And so, how could a bunch of atoms do that? Um, so what happens is that the ribosome will just be sitting on there jiggling around and then um, another protein kind of uh, crashes into the ribosome and sticks at a very specific site. And then when it's still doing that, when it hits a certain angle, it, it may change change its kind of oh, pose or the way yeah. it's standing. Um, yeah. And then it will jump around like that. And that protein may fall off and another one comes and then it does another movement. And like that, it can kind of inchworm its way along the messenger RNA. Uh, but but they're all made out of atoms, and the atoms are jiggling around. And so somehow those wiggles and jiggles relate to making proteins and um, uh, and like a, like the mRNA vaccine from Pfizer. Um, you know, the ribosome is sitting on the Pfizer messenger RNA, um, and it goes only in one direction, exactly three nucleotides at a time, and it makes the spike protein, and that gives you your immune response for the vaccine to work. You know, um, so but how that's do these what that little factory is creating is that kind of fake uh, or mock spike protein, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so you have all these atoms of the ribosomes wiggling, jiggling. How does it work? You know, and could we engineer it to work better? For example, like with the mRNA, that's also made of atoms and wiggling and jiggling. And what Pfizer and Moderna do is they try to engineer the mRNA to make it more stable, more resilient, or have the, just the right properties so it can actually work. But how do they do that engineering? You know, you have all the atoms sitting there jiggling. Maybe if you change one atom, it might make it better. It might make it worse. Could you predict without having to do, you know, millions of dollars of experiments to, to improve that to mRNA? And that's where the supercomputers come in. Um, so what we do is uh, we try to make um, models of the messenger RNA and the ribosome in atomistic detail. Uh, and so for that, you have to do some cryogenic electron microscopy experiments. So you, you prepare your ribosome and you freeze it, and then you um, put it under an electron beam uh, that acts like a microscope, and you can end up getting these all-atom uh, structures of ribosomes and mRNAs, but then you still just have like a dead ribosome on a dead mRNA, but we want yeah, to know what happens when it's alive. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so what we can do is we can solve uh, Newton's equations of motion for all the atoms in these systems. So for example, for ribosomes, um, it has around 250,000 atoms. Uh, so for each one of those 250,000, you go to atom number one, and you compute the forces due 
on that atom due to all the other atoms in the ribosome and in the surrounding media. And then you go to the next atom and compute the forces due to all the other ones on that. And you do that 250,000 times. And then you have to repeat that over and over again to see it move, actually. So we need to wow. do billions or trillions of snapshots to see just, wow. just a flash of a lifetime of a ribosome. And then you could change one and, thing and, and we, see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And um, so we managed, we did that for the ribosome in uh, 2005. Um, and that was the first ever million atom simulation of a, a biological system. And then in 2019, we did it for a gene. It turns out one gene is actually way bigger than a ribosome. Um, so a gene uh, consists of the DNA wrapped around these hockey pucks called nucleosomes. Uh, and uh, that, that was about a billion atoms. Um, so we did that on the Trinity uh, machine here at Los Alamos in 2019. And so there we're trying to understand the epigenetics. So we have our DNA and uh, the DNA is wrapped around. So again, I can go back to my, maybe I'll use my microphone. Uh, so I can go back to the, uh, now, okay, now I'll use the same cable, but now imagine it's not an mRNA, but it's uh, DNA. Actually, maybe I have a white cable. Uh, I don't think it will reach into the, oh wait, I, d I do have a white cable, just a second. Awesome. This helps. It's a good thing. Okay. So this is the, um, so imagine the white cable is DNA and you have your nucleosome, which is made of eight proteins. Uh, and then the DNA wraps about twice around the nucleosome. Okay. Uh, and this you call chromatin or chromosome material. And you'll have thousands of these microphones or hockey pucks uh, for just one. For, for just a few genes, really. Uh, so we had, I think, 400 or so nucleosomes in our simulation just for one gene. And what happens in epigenetics is when certain, uh, when the uh, system is chemically modified, it can cause these hockey pucks to condense down into a, a, a tight tangle. Or another kind of mo modification may ca cause it to expand to be quite extended. And then the tendency is that the extended systems is like a gene turned on state and the condensed okay. system is like gene turned off. Gene turned and off. that's how we get the epigenetic uh, circuitry going. And so we're trying to understand how that happens with, with the supercomputers. It's fascinating. And, and that starts bringing it into real life examples of the, you've got your DNA that is, you know, that is, always going to stay in that same order. And then things happen in this system that you're describing to turn on or off a gene with what result? What are some of the things that, that we know or that we can imagine would, that we need to understand? Yeah. Uh, the, the main example for epigenetic switching and epigenetic regulation is um, development of a baby. So uh, many of these differentiation decisions, so we talked about the fertilized egg develop, divides into two cells, the two into four, the four into eight, that are identical. But after, in the next generations, they start to differentiate. And these um, switching, uh, they call them decisions, uh, determine the fate of those cells. Will it become a brain cell or a lung cell or a blood cell? And uh, related to that is that defects in these processes may result in a miscarriage or 
uh, birth defect or, you know, someone not so have people having fertility issues. And it really is kind of a black box now where people don't have uh, any clue about why someone miscarries or, you know, there are a lot of tricks of the trade where, oh, if you eat this or you eat that or, um, and so forth. But um, it's, it's definitely not a predictive science as far from it right now, but the hope is that understanding these more carefully can help with that. Um, in addition, there are many kinds of cancer. So you have your uh, cancer cell or tumor cell and a non-tumor cell. And the idea would be, can we uh, control the epigenetic switching to change a tumor cell to a non-tumor cell uh, and uh, help with cancer? Um, there's a lot of applications in, in the brain uh, as well for different kinds of uh, brain uh, conditions and brain disorders. Uh, so there's a whole um, a wide variety of applications here. Uh, and one, one, one interesting application is in the effect of stress and uh, trauma. Um, some of the earliest studies in epigenetics were done on rodents, um, rats, and mice. And uh, some of the classic experiments done by the MENI group in Canada, I think this the first paper has like something like 5,000 citations or so, but they uh, took uh, baby rats and um, some of them were nurtured by the mother and some were not. And they found, uh, uh, then they looked at their DNA and they found that the genes controlling stress response uh, had completely different marks, epigenetic marks for the ones that were nurtured and the ones that were not. And these marks persisted uh, not only into the children of those kids, but into the grandchildren. So the epigenetic marks can get passed down uh, uh, because of things that happen during childhood. And there are also uh, um, health issues and um, uh, they had poor stress response for, through, um, throughout their life. Um, so stress and trauma are um, some of the canonical examples in epigenetics as well. So that, that really belies this idea that um, it's all nature or it's all nurture. It, what you're saying exactly. is that what happens to us in our lives, the choices that we make, things like that, and choices we don't make, just trauma that you know happens to be in our way yeah, as we go right. through our life, yeah. can actually change the DNA that is passed yeah. on. Absolutely, absolutely. And so in the nature versus nurture philosophy discussion, you could say the answer is neither, or you could say the answer is kind of both, where um, it's not really one or the other. It's kind of this amalgam uh, where the DNA is being affected by uh, social interactions, especially in early early childhood. So it, it brings me to the question that I know that you have been, you're, you're looking at so many things. You're like, you know, yeah. you're, you're a Renaissance scientist, but I know that one of the right. things that you've been interested in is um, the biological basis of gender. And I wanted to know if you could sort of talk to us about, you know, this is such a, a burning question right now, socially, you know, the idea of gender, boys, girls, trans, you know, um, and, and, I think that, like so many things, science is trying, you know, trying to sort of help us negotiate our way through these complicated issues. What, what, what are you finding and how has it influenced you? Uh, yeah, so this is a topic I'm fascinated in because I'm a transgender woman myself. So um, I 
have a deep interest in what is the biological basis of gender. And my mother, um, I think she started the first women's science department in the state of New York. Um, so she's also been heavily interested in gender her whole life. Uh, so it's it's kind of in my blood, this interest in the topic, I think. And um, so um, why don't I start here? So what, what I transitioned in uh, 2010 and uh, and I was uh, contemplating doing a lot of the um, sex reassignment surgeries, uh, sex reassignment surgery, facial harmonization surgery and so forth. And the surgeries are irreversible. And the funny thing is when you would tell someone like a family member, oh, you're, I'm thinking of doing the surgery and they're like, do you know it's irreversible? Like as if I never thought it through and didn't know. Yeah, you're not, you're so not a person that does research on things like this. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I thought, no, I thought you could reverse it, you know, but, uh, uh, but anyway, um, but it is irreversible. So it's a big, a very big decision because it's lifelong, you know, and as a scientist, um, I started reading the literature on what's, you know, what is the biological basis of gender or being transgender? And there were a few um, studies that had been done, one by uh, Dick Schwab in uh, Europe, many by Dick Schwab, um, who looked at brain structure for um, cisgender or sort of regular typical women and transgender women like me, and found um, striking differences in the sexual activity center uh, region, and along with a few other differences. Uh, and there were, I think, a few other groups who, who found, who also were looking into this. And so at that point, I was on a neuroscience project um, in machine learning back, back then, um, but I was just doing coding. I wasn't a neuroscientist myself, but I was asking my neuroscientist colleagues, you know, what do you think of these papers? I'm thinking about getting these surgeries, but it's a big decision. I, I don't want to make the wrong choice here. And they thought the studies were really um, quite clear and quite convincing. Um, so that's what really tipped me over the edge on, on going for the surgeries, basically. Um, and then after that, um, uh, one of my best postdocs came to my lab, Arena Novikova. And a lot, as I've been talking today, a lot of my research is about RNA molecules. And um, there was one very huge RNA uh, molecule that I'd been interested in, but it was kind of on the back burner uh, in a paper on my bookshelf. And she really took interest in that RNA. And um, we started looking at it. And this was an RNA that's a coactivator for estrogen response called steroid receptor RNA activator. Um, and, uh, and it has um, a lot of, it, it is related to epigenetics. And it turns out that a lot of RNA, like right then, this whole new field was coming up called long non-coding RNAs. So we talked about messenger RNAs, the the blue, um, the blue cable. Uh, so these are RNAs. The messenger RNAs are the ribosome gloms onto them and makes proteins. But there's a whole other kind of RNA called non-coding RNA, um, coming from the so-called junk DNA. Sometimes they call it the dark matter of the genome. But the non-coding RNA. Um, can do different things. And in, in like the early 2000s, they found tiny non-coding RNAs that can do all kinds of things like turn on and off genes and um, almost act like proteins. But the new class gigantic RNAs, uh, this steroid receptor RNA was one of those. 
And a couple others were being discovered, one by uh, a group at Harvard and several others were coming out. And then in, as we were working on this RNA, um, a whole bunch of RNAs um, were being discovered. And now it's a whole little field called long non-coding RNAs. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so we, we started looking at that RNA and it had a lot of, epi there, were, there were a lot of epigenetic effects with this class of RNAs. And that, that's how I got excited about epigenetics. Um, so I started really getting heavily into epigenetics. And um, so, but tying back to your question about gender though, um, so uh, in, in epigenetics, um, you have a lot of things happening during development and, and almost the, the majority of um, cell fate decisions are epigenetic switches, you know, that are influenced by uh, hormones and small molecules and, and so forth. And so, so one of the working models for um, gender now is that uh, essentially in the first trimester, the, the brain uh, of pregnancy, the brain can differentiate to male or female. Um, and then more toward the second trimester, the genitals, or sorry, I mixed that up. <laughs> Let me start over. In the first trimester, the um, genitals differentiate from male to female. And then after that, uh, more toward the second trimester, the brain differentiates. Um, and then it's possible that perhaps the signaling, uh, something gets mixed up there where the genitals go one way, but the brain goes goes the other way. Um, and the signaling decisions are often controlled by um, epigenetics. Um, but we need a lot more research into this to figure out exactly how, how this works. So we're, um, there's a few people out there in the world um, trying to do studies on, on transgender genetics and epigenetics. And um, we are also trying, but there's uh, pretty much no funding out there to do this kind of work. Um, these are studies that cost millions or tens of millions of dollars to do on a large scale to be done properly. So it's, um, it's hard to convince uh, the funding agencies that this is, this is worthwhile, you know? So, um, so there's, there's a few of us trying, there's um, Rupert, um, Lanziger in University of Vienna, um, doing um, MRI and brain scans of transgender people. Uh, there's another brain scanning group in Stockholm, and one or two people looking at genetics and epigenetics. Um, but har hardly anyone is doing it because there's no funding really to do this kind of work. But but we're trying to, um, you know, build build more um, uh, awareness of of this issue and how um, we think it's something that should be looked at. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think when you start to understand epigenetics or the things that layer on top of the DNA and, and can change it and the complexity of what you've been describing, you know, for the last hour, that um, it seems like, you know, the notions that are are simple and maybe um, satisfying to some people that boys are boys and girls are girls and boys should be with girls. And, you know, those kinds of ideas, it almost seems like our cells are, are telling, you know, the cellular research that you're doing and others are telling us that a lot of the things in human life and development and behavior are not are not that simple. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, one, like as an example, like um, there's a condition called CAIS or androgen insensitivity syndrome. Um, this is an intersex condition. And I'm not saying that um, 
it's anywhere anyway related to uh, being transgender. But in this condition, um, people have XY chromosomes, but they develop uh, physically as women. Um, so the genitals and everything, uh, they often are diagnosed when um, during puberty because they often can't, they can't have children. Um, but some people go their whole life um, without knowing, they just believe they're a normal, uh, typical woman. Um, and um, uh, I knew I had an endocrinologist who had a patient, um, and who didn't know, I think the patient, I believe was in her forties and didn't know they had this condition. They had XY chromosomes, but were treated as a woman their whole life and uh, believe they were women, but had XY chromosomes, but female genitalia. And then the endocrinologist was asking me, I'm not sure if I should tell this person or not her status. Do you have any insight on this? You know, it's a, so it's a, it's a tough question, but, but um, there are conditions out there where people have XY chromosomes, um, but are treated by society and the medical community as women. You know, um, right. So that's right. an interesting yeah. thing, yeah. I think. Yes, absolutely. I think that is interesting. And it, it just, you know, it's emblematic, I think, of just so many complexities that, you know, we're just as, you know, things like, uh, you know, we're learning much more about the stars and space right now, but I also think we're learning more about our own selves and what makes us the way we are um, and how we how science might help guide, you know, not only advances, but also understanding. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you, you know, for for example, um, when the sex chromosomes were first discovered, um, there were so many varieties, um, X, 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 Y, just one X or X, X, X. Um, there's a whole um, spectrum of different kinds of karyotypes, not just X, X and X, Y. The researchers were really hesitant to saying that X, X and X, Y were the sex chromosomes and that there's only, and that there these two possibilities because they, they saw that there was this huge gamut of, different combinations. Right. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to touch on for a little bit, I did want to touch on how um, moving sort of toward into, into what you've been looking at and, and what some of the hot new things are in, in your lab and, and others to look at things like COVID that's going on, COVID vaccines, understanding of COVID and, also antibiotic resistance. You and I talked a little bit about that and how, how the science of epigenetics uh, and understanding these you know, formulations can help to uh, point the way to some of the things that are really threatening in our world right now. Uh, yeah, so um, one of the key um, technologies that I'm interested in is um, cryogenetic, cryogenic electron microscopy or cryo-EM. And um, there's kind of been, uh, this is a technique that's been, uh, that was developed, uh, you know, in the seventies or so a long time ago, but in 2013, it kind of had a quantum leap where they started using solid state direct electron detectors that allowed them to get high resolution um, 3D images of these systems I've been talking about, but very quickly before you used to have to go to a particle accelerator like at, at Berkeley or Chicago or in England um, 
these massive particle accelerators like 10 miles wide and everything you know and get high get x-rays from those but with cryo em um you can just have a unit in your own lab um and get your sample and then image it just in-house um so it's been uh so much quicker to, to do things like that and so so we're looking at ribosomes um and rnas and uh with these kind with this uh, technology um, I'm actually starting a sabbatical soon with um, Professor Joachim Frank at Columbia, who's one of the developers of the technology. Um, so we want to understand how these things work in atomistic detail. So, uh, uh, so for ribosomes uh, and uh, vaccines, um, one interesting one thing we're interested in, one thing that we're interested in in terms of COVID is something called long COVID, uh, and there. Um, these are uh, long-term effects of COVID that people can't really explain right now. Uh, and so uh, in terms of epigenetics, um, we have a project here at Los Alamos where we're trying to uh, look at uh, how uh, viruses impact uh, the chromosome shapes and so forth. Um, so we have some exciting new data, and this is together with um, Sean Starkenberg and Jeannie Lee and Anna LaPala and Christina Stedman. Uh, so that's um, something we're doing, and and we're moving in the direction of using cryoEM to look at this. And then in terms of uh, ribosomes, uh, one thing we're interested in is uh, our bac bacteria that are drug resistant. Uh, so uh, it turns out that the ribosome is one of the main targets of antibiotics. About fifty percent of antibiotics target the ribosome, and so so I was explaining how how that um, you have your messenger RNA and the ribosome gloms onto it and it's reading the messenger RNA and making proteins. And so in your cells, we want this process to work fine. We want it to work really well. But in a harmful bacteria, one way to kill that bacteria is if you block their ribosomes, it will stop them from making proteins and kill the bacteria. Um, so many antibiotics are like little little tiny little molecules that go into sort of the middle of the ribosome, almost like a monkey wrench, and they kind of grind it to a halt. Uh, now, the problem is that a lot of these antibiotics are used so much in hospitals that it selects for drug-resistant bacteria that with the existing antibiotics we have, you can't kill, like there's no cure to these infections, basically. Um, some of them are quite severe, like flesh-eating and so forth. Um, so. Uh, we're trying to use our studies in, with the supercomputers and cryoEM to come up with better antibiotics to go after these drug-resistant bacteria. So that's another area. And then the most, the thing I'm most exciting about is these long RNAs, and um, these these are thought to glom on to the chromatin in the chromosome. So we want to know how those interactions work and so forth. And then and then at the real cutting edge, um, that I'm not really doing this, but uh, uh, it turns out that we we started about the central dogma with the information going from the DNA to the RNA and the RNA to the protein. Most of epigenetics has been about the DNA, really, and modifying the DNA. But now people are finding uh, hints of epigenetic effects in modifying the RNA and modifying the ribosomes. Um, so that's uh, it's really speculative right now, but um, it's really an area of uh, active research. It seems like it would be a lot more precise, and there would be a lot more targets, right? Absolutely, and and it's kind of closer to the 
to the actual process that counts the proteins. Um, so uh, a lot of the medical applications, um, uh, ribosome research in general is getting to be a hot topic because we know so much about the ribosome, we can start to uh, design drugs around it um, because the ribosome is where all the action happens, where the proteins are made. So a lot of the drugs target the DNA, but that's quite a bit upstream before the pro you get the actual protein or they might target the RNA, but the ribosome is really where the proteins are being made. And that can be dynamic, like in the tumor cells versus non-tumor cells or different stages at different times and highly specific stuff. So that's, that's where wow. things are moving. It's just, it's unbelievably exciting. I mean, I just have to tell you that it just, in the research I've done to talk with you and then talking with you today, I've learned so much and it just, it creates all these new questions. Like, could you do this? And could you do that? And yeah, it, it's a wonderful, a wonderful world that you came to ultimately from. Absolutely. Like a lot of these fields are just getting off the ground now. So we're just scratching the surface right now. And the technology is moving so fast that we're able to look at all these questions that people won't even think we could have looked at 10 years ago or 20 years ago. It's incredibly exciting. And it's exciting for us to have had you to, to unravel some of these uh, mysteries and new questions for us. And it, it's just been an utter pleasure to get to know you. And I wish you wonderful luck on your sabbatical. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's been fantastic. I really enjoyed the interaction and everything. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, thank you, Carissa and Betsy, for that incredibly stimulating conversation. Totally informative. And now that I've been introduced to the subject, I'm looking forward to following up with my own continued reading. Thank you. In addition to gender and epigenetics, this year the forum has also discussed nuclear ignition and the viability of fusion as an energy source, the evolutionary value of laughter for humans and animals, advances in the search for genetic cures for addictions, and the historic roots of the gun violence epidemic in America. These and previous forum programs have been viewed in all 50 states and in more than 30 countries by academics and students and scientists and artists and just curious people like you and me. We're in the process of developing a slate of amazing programs for 2024, and to focus on that effort, we're taking a short hiatus during the holiday season so we can have the first ones ready right after the new year. As most of you know, the St. Helena Forum is an all-volunteer nonprofit funded entirely by donations. If you'd like to add your name to the list of people who are donors, go to shforum.org. 